Hello, this is Matt Hale with Art Monthly on Resonance Radio 104.4 FM and um, it's our regular programme based on the current issue of Art Monthly and the issue we're basing it on this time is the September 2010 issue number 339 and we are joined today by Jen Thatcher, Jennifer Thatcher, um, who is freelance writer and project coordinator for the 2011 Folkestone Triennial and we're also joined by... Andrew Hunt, who is the curator of Focal Point Gallery in Southend. Probably head curator is the right word. What is it, Andrew, exactly? Uh, uh, gallery director. Gallery director, that's better. Sorry, <laughs> curator. You're not a curator, you're a gallery director. Sorry about that. I was sorry. trying to turn the page to get you, <laughs> and I didn't have it on the right page. Now, Jen has written a feature, and it's basically about galleries and how they've changed and how they are. It's called Extreme Gallery Makeover. I don't know if that's what Jen called it, but that's what our esteemed yeah, editor has got. She did. Okay. And um, after that, we, we will follow on to deal with a book review, which Andrew's um, written. Uh, the book uh, is called Curating an Educational and the Educational Turn. Um, we think they will link across each other, um, and we shall do our best to make sure they do. But I'm going to start with Jen's feature, and we... Made up. We, we we have a pull quote in in the in the feature, and, and I want to read it out as just a way of getting things going. And it is this: It is time to admit that the white cube no longer possesses the authority it once did. When you can buy that once mysterious aura for a few quid down at B and Q. Um, now, Jennifer, that's something you wrote in your feature. <laughs> Would you like to expand on that? Sure. Um, well, what I meant about buying um, that once mysterious aura for a few quid down at B and Q was that I had noticed that there was a, a paint um, offered by a company called Crown Paints called Gallery White. And I found this, um, this made me think what Gallery White was. Was it just brilliant white repackaged or was there such a thing as a particular shade of white that had become Gallery White? And what did it, what did it all mean? Was it a kind of aspirational thing for people who had become, um, who go to Tate Modern and feel all, contemporary artified and <laughs> would go then to be in Q and see gallery white and and um, and feel like they were in a, they could create their own gallery space at home or was it that galleries themselves were becoming more particular about their interiors and more fashion led and more um snobbish about their yes so, so their it features. pointed you in a sort of direction of thought really just seeing that those two words exactly yeah. and then i started seeing a number of exhibitions that dealt with this subject of gallery interiors um, and I started to think about two different opposing trends that were going on. Um, on the one hand, kind of domestification of the art gallery space right. into a kind of private interior. Um, just just to, to kind of explain, do we mean uh, which, which could sofas be furnished, and wallpaper and yes, that kind of interior? Which in a very on a very literal level could yeah. mean that, yeah. um, whereby certain galleries were actually selling furniture as well as art, for example, a show at uh, Timothy Taylor Gallery and one at uh, Stephen Friedman yeah. Gallery. Both uh, showed uh, art in the context of uh, domestic interiors complete with uh, kind of Scandinavian or French uh, mid-century modern furniture, which, made, which reminded me of uh, Basel Art Fair in the modern section um, on the ground floor where galleries would... Uh, try and give themselves a kind of luxurious domestic interior, even though they were in a kind of um, bland art fair kind of space. Yes, yes. So they would have ceilings where you know most 
uh, art fair booths don't bother and they would have carpeted floor and perhaps even wallpaper and a guard standing outside and and this for me evoked kind of old-fashioned ideas of a quality luxury taste exclusivity so i felt that certain galleries were going back to that kind of old-fashioned model of exclusivity i mean i've always imagined that the the galleries particularly commercial galleries which which, which is what you'd find at bars offer were doing it to allow the buyer to imagine the work in their home exactly Uh, but then it goes further than that because i presume that they actually perhaps are suggesting this is the kind of room you should have Sure, and if you don't have Your it, you can buy in. the accessories here as well. well. Yes, and then, of course, unless you haven't got it, we sell that as well. It's yeah. that, so it's very commercial. So it's like a posh B&Q. Yeah, but it's it's definitely the commercial end of the art world. Do you think this 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 domesticated in, gallery interior only occurs in? Do you well, think? no, because um, certain public art spaces or or private foundations that act in a kind of public way have started uh, domestifying their interiors as well. I was noting certain. Uh, museums and galleries that had had extensions recently, for example, the South London Gallery, which expanded into the next door uh, townhouse, where uh, the expansion was into much more, much smaller domestic scales spaces. Yes. In one case, almost like a box room, which is completely different from the idea of a white cube space, which is of a decent size, painted yeah. white. This yeah. this was. Um, some of the rooms were, were not even painted. They were left, plaster was just left as it was, or they were decorated on the walls by artists. Um, and the whole first exhibition of South London Gallery seemed to be about showing off the new space as if someone was saying, come into my home, look at all the details, look at the original walls, look at the original floors. Not, it wasn't really about the art. No. And the same thing for Raven Row Gallery when that opened um, 18 months ago or whenever it yes. was two years ago, uh, who used the same architects, 6A architects, who are also very sort of domestic scale architects. And the um, Raven Row gallery seemed to be uh, less a white cube space, but rather a kind of restoration of... um, of a period Quite building. a beautiful one. I mean, it's probably, probably actually got some restrictions on what it can do to that sure, space. Sure, but actually. other places might... Uh, in the past, you might have bunged a f- false wall across a... Oh, yes, a carefully, old, carefully old, not damaging the one underneath, but hiding all the little details. Absolutely. And the fireplaces would be Or you might covered. get Rachel White, which should do a cast first, and then bung a false yes, wall. Yes, yes. No, but they've but left them was, view, in view, they? left they? them in view. So I started thinking about um, why galleries have, have retreated into the domestic, and I think there are various possible reasons and there's a kind of anti-IKEA aesthetic a kind of anti-democratization of art where it's become so popular that somehow there's a, a reaction against that so so the, so the galleries had the white cube yeah and then that became and then <laughs> everybody had the white cube potentially in their home with IKEA and and Absolutely. And, and so now they're saying oh hang on a minute that's now common I think so. Do you think? And then, then possibly. No, I think that's one. <laughs> We're stretching it a bit, probably. Particular um, way of thinking about it, um, and also I think it's to do with the commercialisation of art and trying, as you said, about kind of imagining um, the interior and trying to entice people in a recession to kind of go back to this idea of art, kind of completing your yes. interior and yeah. going back also and, and reflecting also kind of lifestyle values now, where art, you know, at its most extreme, is just a subset of interior design and interior design has, has almost overtaken art in terms of people's aspirations so there was that side of things and then on the other side there's the complete opposite where museums are getting bigger and bigger and employing more and more star architects you know star architects 
to design these amazing buildings, architects like Zaha Hadid, um, Herzog and de Morvan. Um, but actually, often the spaces inside would be very conservative. So you'd have these kind of amazing places with possibly um, with gigantic atria and um, and wonderful restaurants and so on. But the actual gallery spaces would be fairly banal and nothing had changed since the white cube became popular or was popularized in the 1930s by um uh, moma in new york so i think um as these spaces were getting bigger they weren't necessarily rethinking what the white cube should be uh and i think, still think there's a big question mark over what kind of space is appropriate now that art is not just pictures on walls and things on pedestals and plinths, and it you know has to um, span such a wide range of media and disciplines now that it's it's becoming challenging to deal with all of these within a space. And there's a on the, some museums and galleries have decided to go for a more flexible space, but even then it's um, and try and put as much of the work into the gallery on display as possible. So you get these big museums with everything on display. The offices. The, and the offices and the rehearsal spaces and, um, you know, like Tate Modern last weekend um, with um, Michael Clark doing, oh, yeah. um, uh, rehearsing for a performance that he will put on next year. And I, and I just wonder whether he, it was his idea to rehearse in, in the Turbine Hall in full view of the public or whether the Tate said, look, you can do this next year if... Yeah. You know, if you do this rehearsal in public, I'm, I'm but it's, but intrigued. It's, yeah. Because I can't imagine, for some artists, that can be a good thing to interact with the public. But in many cases, a rehearsal is a rehearsal because it's away from the public. Yeah. You mentioned, I think, some artists who were actually given studio space effectively within a, a museum. Um, but so long as they then met the public every week. Yeah, this is a French space, which I haven't been to, but it's been sort of much talked about in the art press, called Saint Quatre, uh, where you got studio space, but only if you if you were kind of agreed to be on display mm. as much as possible. That happens a little bit at the Serpentine, though. Exactly. You have kind yeah. of, uh, you know, artists and kind of mini residencies in the education room at the back. You know, they're kind of hidden away uh, and making work. And, but I think they're available, you know, to kind of talk to the public and stuff. But, I mean, one of the things that uh, I really thought about when I was reading your article uh, was, it might sound a little boring, but it's a connected uh, issue about property developing and art becoming becoming window dressing for property. Yeah. And um, it's not been very well documented, but all the evidence is out there to say that, um, you know, kind of uh, this massive expansion of new uh, art spaces, so New Art Gallery also, uh, the latest one is probably New Nottingham Contemporary and you've got First Sight and Turner Contemporary coming up, uh, you've got Baltic uh, the new icon um, the whole the whole um, kind of massive expansion in kind of uh, and lottery funding to, bu to build these bin buildings is uh, come, stems from the fact that Peter Palumbo, the major property developer, uh, was head of uh, the the, the was 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 a major factor in kind of uh, uh, diverting lottery money to making buildings, rather than giving it to artists. So one of the one of the interesting things there is that he thought that um, the public doesn't trust art, don't trust artists, but they trust buildings. So why why not give the money to buildings rather than artists? 
Uh, obviously, you know, this goes back a long time, uh, way before Carl Andre's equivalent eight and the uh, media getting hold of that. The reason why the public don't like art and the media demonization of contemporary art. Um, but the thing is, is that in a way, um, the increasing amount of people uh, such as property developers and architects as kind of take trustees, for example, or, uh, or trustees of the Royal Academy meant that the art world in the, in the 90s somewhat, you could argue, uh, became a little club for those types of people. And they were able to network and do, you know, this, you could say, argue that there was a lot of insider dealing going on. And it might have been in property developers' interests to be able to uh, build, you know, to be able to divert this public money to, you know, making these new buildings because off the back of it, property prices go up. In a, in a, it's a small symptom of regeneration and cultural worth <clears throat> and the benefits of culture, government's rhetoric, arts council rhetoric, etc. I mean, not all of it is negative, but at the same time, you could say with Michael Craig Mar Martin being on the Tate's trustee, uh, a Tate, as a Tate trustee for 15 years, uh, you know, there's a tailor-made YBA scene um, that their work just becomes window dressing for property. And at the moment, what you're seeing um, is, you know, it was basically a false uh, overcompensation, that scene, for the lack of opportunities in the 80s for British artists. So at the moment where we are now, you can say that um, because this is massive success of Tate Modern and all of the other uh, buildings that I've mentioned... You could actually say that um, with the massive visitor numbers for Tate Modern, um, this is maybe this is attempt to kind of uh, get ordinary people in ordinary ordinary in quotation marks as as collectors, you know, a kind of encourage them to be collectors. And this domestication of of the art space is a kind of symptom of that attempt, or you know, kind of um, or one you know, kind of reverse symptom of the museum to becoming domestic and I don't know. That's that's what one of the things I, I was I was uh, playing with. Um, you, you run a gallery um, yourself, as we said at the beginning of the programme. Just tell us a little bit, say, what's your space like? Well, I mean, I don't want to uh, go on too much. No, no, but I'll be interested because, you know... You're... Yeah. Um, well, basically, I mean, it's uh, I've been there two years. I, I took over... Um, to, to run the gallery and give it a new direction um, in June, July 2008. And it's on this, it's right at the back of a, of a library. Right, which is a very, uh, yeah. actually quite an unusual place to have a gallery, I, I think. Yeah, well, it's unusual to have a library now. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely right. Yeah. They're under threat. But the, the whole idea about it is that, uh, I mean, this comes from working with Linda Morris in Norwich, is that, that you know, she was a massive influence on on lots of people's thinkings and uh, thinking and, and young curators. And her idea is that people are more important than buildings and money should go to, uh, you know, the idea of bringing Conrad Fisher as a, as a, as a model, bringing people at the start of conceptual art, Americans paying for an airfare rather than, you know, for them to come over rather than, than to ship their work over. So the idea of working with what you've got in terms of, a, of a, a small, you know, gallery on a second floor at the back of a library, a regional library, rather than everyone having to have their new building. I mean, it's when I arrived, the plan, the long-term plan is to have a big new building. <laughs> but um, in a way, um, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's about making what, we've, you know, the best of what we've got. And actually, I don't really, to be honest, want to move. You're quite happy much. the way things yeah. are, really, yeah. We get a massive audience, and and this is, you know, all to do with who the audience is and, you know, who is the audience for contemporary art as well, I suppose, in these big spaces. But, you know, I mean, Southend uh, Central Library is a 
seventh, I think, most visited library in the country. That's included in London. So we the people don't come f- necessarily for the gallery; they come for the library, and we benefit from that audience. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it's it's all as I say, it's all about bringing people together and kind of uh, making things, uh, you know, conversation happen in some respects. Jen, in your piece, you mentioned this talking about the public. Yeah. Um, you mentioned collective public and universal public. Uh, which bring, what were you saying about that? Well, I think the idea of the white cube originally was meant to be a kind of unifying aesthetic which uh, assumed a kind of collective public without thinking too much about it. Now these two different trends, uh, I think, are symptomatic of an ambiguity about what is the public. On the one hand, the sort of domestication is a, is a, uh, can be seen as trying to establish a kind of exclusive public that's a sort of... Um, you know, it can't deal with these enormous spaces. It's not an entertainment space in quite the same way as these huge sort of mega kunsthallers, which um, I talk about as being like the non-places of airports and yes, shopping yes. malls and um, where they if you were going into a different country and you saw a museum of contemporary art, you would know what to expect. It'll be, it'll you would feel comfortable. Yeah, in yeah. some weird way, that kind of space has become a reassuring. Well, you'd know there'd symbol. be a cafe, and you'd, you'd, you'd know there'd be a cloakroom to leave your coat, and you'd know exactly. that all those kind of things would be there, bookshops. But then that kind of public is such a huge kind of it's is so diverse that you no longer know what what they are, and um, some museums and galleries panic and try and and try and second guess what the public want and or wait to find out what they want and then build things according specifically yeah and there was a interesting discussion in uh this summer's art forum about museum spaces and um rem coolhouse discussed an idea of having different speeds for different types of public or different areas of a museum to be able to cope with the fact that museums now got so many people that they just simply can't cope so he was thinking of having a fast speed for kind of um the infrastructure things like being able to get out being able to get to the cafe or music or or shop or whatever and then slow spaces for contemplation but in a way um I mean, that was a sort of interesting starting point. But then he started thinking of tailor, tailoring uh, certain areas or of museums or tailoring different ways of viewing the museum for different types of audiences. So he was talking about having a particular route around the museum that would be for a particular nationality who would stereotypically like to go fast around certain bits and not around the other. <laughs> you know, he was just... Um, and, Obviously, this potentially this is endless. You know, the amount of routes and tours mm. that you could possibly do, and it's not really a, a very helpful idea of of a public, and and is very passive because you're mm. waiting to find out what that kind of public wants. Well, one of the things that's interesting. I mean, there was uh, I did this. Uh, interview with Ralph Rogoff once and he said that uh, one of the interesting things he wanted to do when he started to work at the Hayward Gallery was to have you know just simple things like a number of different captions for different uh, uh, you know different captions on, on the same work to say that you know this idea of one idea about a particular work or exhibition is only one idea and you know this idea I remember speaking to Anne Pontony it worked at Wills as well interviewed her for this same book a couple of years ago and you know she was curating this uh, show on a solo exhibition on Mike Kelly's work and she said look this is my it seemed a bit kind of conceited in a way because she said this is my 
my Mike Kelly exhibition, and it makes you wonder what she means by that. But what, it's actually quite a modest, self uh, uh, kind of deprecating thing to say because she's saying, look, this is just my my version of what could happen. This isn't the Mike Kelly exhibition. There could be like 25 different, you know, Mike Kelly exhibitions. So I suppose that's that is the thing in in terms of like interpretation and way, the ways that galleries are designed architects the way that they work with interior spaces you know this is it's it's about kind of i don't know maybe there's a way that we could kind of start to think about interior spaces in a similar sort of way just to say look make make an authoritative statement and say that this is what i think but it's not necessarily the way that it could it has to be I mean, I suppose, obviously, with buildings, once you've built something, it's there. So, I mean, there's no. But they way always add another it, but... part. I mean, you know, the Tate Modern is having, ha- adding another bit, mm. which will be different, probably, to the yeah. the first thinking they had. I mean, it looks quite different. But interesting whether it will be, to I don't know, know what the interiors are like. Well, I know. That's, it, that's the interesting thing. The yeah. exterior, obviously, Tate Modern, apart from the turbine hall, um, the interiors could are be there, anywhere. Could, could be anywhere. Could be anywhere. Yeah. And in fact, you know, there was, of course, institutional critique. Um, mm. Uh, focused on the fact that a lot of people like Andrea Fraser were talking about how as museums expanded, the exhibition space often didn't expand proportionally um, and not only didn't, but stayed very conservative. Yes, yes. No, I think in a way that's what I think of Tate Modern, is you go in to something which seems like it's going to be really different and then quite quickly it's normal. (laughs) So there's a lack of, you know, while while the public, the the foyers and the atrium and the cafes have all been... You know, rethought and you know, carefully thought out the actual spaces in which art yeah. takes place haven't yeah. be, haven't had. I mean, I remember that in, in the nineties there were there were shows that would, would be, and it still goes on, I'm sure now. But I, I remember where the building was responded to by the artists. That actually, I mean, I mean some of that was like I thought, oh god, that's a bit oversensitive. But actually, it made new work sometimes because they were, you know reacting to the physicality of... And if it was an old building, they might leave... I remember, I mean, I did a show in a room once where I just found the whole room completely... Um, it was like someone had been developing photographs in it and all the detritus was there and and they were, they'd blacked out the windows and things. I just left it like that and then added a light box in the middle of it. Well, it, it, the whole thing became the work. Well, I didn't do anything to the room, but it was a response. And that, 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 I think, you know, that kind of dealing with buildings is... You can't do that in Tate Modern because it doesn't... You know they they change everything every time, don't they? Just just going to the to the book that you you reviewed, Andrew. Um, at the beginning, you mentioned um, there's a shift towards education, which is currently pervasive in curatorial practice. So, a shift towards education being, you mean when people are curating, they um, see that as a form of educating people. Is that what you mean? Well, I mean, this is the assertion that's made at the beginning of the Yeah, I'm not saying it's your assertion. Sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, by, by Paul O'Neill and Mick, Mick Wilson. Um, and they've given, in their book, they, it's a kind of quite comprehensive compendium, uh, edited compendium of uh, different um, contributions, some existing, a lot newly commissioned, of uh, work. Writing and interviews and essays um, about particular examples uh, of uh, education, artists as educators in some way, or curators as educators, uh, and radical ways of looking uh, at kind of um, the way that art can be, be, educa- be an educational tool and not be instrumentalised in, in some way. So that the education, usually, say, for example, in a gallery, uh, 
such as the one that I work in, you'll have um, the curated pr the, the program, the gallery program, and the education program. And the education program will will often feel, if you're not careful, like an add-on. Yes, to yes, quite separate. And this the the idea is, that I suppose, that's one example of what we're trying to avoid with this book is to look at kind of um, different artists and uh, artists who and, and curators who actually work with uh, the idea of uh, ongoing symposia and lectures and events as a way of kind of addressing social and political rea and economic reality in some way. Yeah, which which may just to keep it linked to to, the, to Jen's article. I mean, do you think some of some of this this approach? Um, where are you bringing the education and the art together affects the? I mean, obviously, it must affect the experience of the of the audience that come, and it presumably may affect the the space mm. as well. Well, I think the the thing is, is uh, where what, the space is even. Yeah, one of the the largest contested things here, I think, in terms of this, this, there's always massive assumptions. But I suppose on one side you've got this idea, and Liam Gillick comes across it and mentions it in his in his essay, the idea of an infinite future or, or an ASAP future. Yes, I like that. And it's, uh, yeah, and it's, 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 a, it's really good, in fact. It's the idea of, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's how to achieve that ASAP future. Is it even possible? Uh, you mean, rather than the future being something we're never going to reach? Yeah, the idea like of... an a, ideal yeah. future, do you mean? It's the idea of a kind of, uh, a kind of um, permanently delayed uh, utopian uh, future or, or that idea of Adorno who talks about a utopian glimpse so art or in one respect the art object traditionally you know you could say that it offers this moment a good art object it avoids uh, any sort of instrument mentalization or, or, or kind of um, of course it's something that can be bought and sold but within still within that capitalist economy it offers a, 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 a glimpse of a redeemed social and political reality now the idea of education in the in this kind of uh, the imminent possibility of education is that it, it can... Gillick is arguing is that it's possible to do that in the here and now. And and this is the whole thesis, obviously, behind relational aesthetics as well, is this kind of immediate, cosy reconciliation with everything that's wrong with capitalism. And it's obviously... Uh, that this is something that can be argued for and against and has been over the last few yes, years. Yeah. But So the idea of education is, in that respect... I mean, he goes on to talk about had on Vidocla's um, United Nations Plaza, which was a, a project that came out of uh, the failed manifesto in uh, Nicosia. Um, and I think that, that the, the Anton Vidocla's essay and Gillick's writing about it were, were slightly misguided in some respects because I thought um, that, you know, Vidocla's... I mean... You know, it was saying that this local, local, local situation community was impossible to work with. But then he, as because he he didn't work, wasn't able to work with them, he, he just re relapsed back into working with art world centres where there's a tailor-made expert audience. Yeah. So I suppose that's just an easy thing to do, and it talks about different audiences and you know. But that's a more honest thing to do than go in and try and work with people who perhaps have no interest in contemporary art. Yeah. You know, there, there is a sense that. You talk about um, a kind of colonising function, and I think the art world hasn't got rid of that, mm. and that this educational turn still has aspects of colonising, of yes. going in and trying through workshops or yeah. um, ideas of participation which are anything but open-ended to convince people of certain social, ethical uh, values of 
that that stem from contemporary art. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole thing is that you know, this um, because of the culture of contemporary art and the way that public funding's worked is that there's a massive assumption that people, the general public, uh, want contemporary art, and most people, I would argue, that a lot of people just aren't interested. Um, which is fair enough, you know. I mean, but the problem is, is that, you know, art world experts would say that, you know, or, or people who are passionate about it would really want to convince the general public that it is really good. You but know, that's, that's different. Thing, isn't it? I mean, that's different from, you know, I, I completely understand the idea of trying to mm. convince people contemporary art is interesting. And but to say that uh, not only look, I'm just going to um, tell you why I'm so interested in contemporary art and hopefully mm. share my enthusiasm with you and perhaps you will find a, a, a way in or access to it where you thought it might be too difficult before that's different from saying uh actually i can we, we can all be participants in some kind of art social experiment in which i'm going to uh, show you that all these values and contemporary art can be useful to your general life and help you out of whatever it is such a social situation you might find yourself in yeah, I mean... Listen, guys, I'm really sorry. <laughs> this experiment has got to come to an end. We are a half hour program, and I can see we could go on talking for much longer, and I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to, to end it there, but sure. I really appreciate it. I hope that everyone has been stimulated by this conversation and will please read these guys' features and book reviews in Art Month's current issue. I was just getting angry there. Yes, I know, yeah. I'm really sorry. Ho- hopefully not at me, because this is no. not my argument at all. <laughs> not so, at no, all no, 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 Yes, no, I hope that's clear. Andrew was um, relating the book. I, I, I actually really agreed with Andrew's um, review. Good. Well, I hope everyone will read it. And thank you ever so much for listening to this programme of Art Monthly on Resonance Radio 104.4 FM. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>